Hello and welcome to another edition of the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and with me is Jared Riddick. Happy to be here. And uh, this is going to be Chapter 6, Principle 6, mm-hmm. I guess we're going to call it. And we alternate Joseph, throughout. Yeah, yeah, we kind of mess around with it. This is uh, Principle 6 in Joseph and Moroni, and this principle is called The Lord Has Already Planned for His Children's Success. And this being kind of a theme in this particular chapter, and and really when you go back through the book, a kind of subtle tone throughout, and that is that everything that we do is line upon line. Mm-hmm. We grow a little with every step of our progression, and that's part of what Joseph went through. And uh, that's part of the theme here. It is. I found this a very comforting theme. Yeah. Reading over it. It was, it was nice to think about. It's good sometimes we don't know the end from the beginning. It's, it's comforting to know that the Lord has things planned out for us. Yeah. And even though things might seem uh, less than optimal in the, in the present, the things will turn out all right in the end. Yeah. And I think that when we, when we look at situations like the Martin Harris story, we may look at it differently than Joseph did, of course, because we have the perspective of time that we can see that things did get better. He did get to translate again. But in the moment, Joseph was freaked out. That My soul that was, was lost. Yeah. He thought that was it. And you can understand why he thought that. And so, but we have kind of the conclusion of the Martin Harris story here to start out chapter six or principle six. See, I messed it up again. But uh, there's a quote here that I find interesting because some people, I have very strong opinions about Martin Harris. Mm-hmm. In this particular quote, um, I would say that Legrand spoke somewhat highly of Martin, even though you know he had impetuous decisions and, and even some declarations. But the quote was, if Martin had believed that Joseph had contrived his story in order to get rich, or that Joseph's revelations were a hoax, this, meaning the lost 116 pages, would have been the perfect time for him to respond by exposing Joseph to the world. But he did not. Instead, since Martin knew the revelations were true, he acknowledged his sins and repented. And that takes a, a great man, to, in my opinion, a great man to do. Yeah. Well, he publicly messed up. Mm-hmm. And, and he to had know his that wife. his error is going to be on the record. Yeah, for a while. Forever. <laughs> uh, and his wife was certainly a cheerleader for saying this was a hoax, This he was ripping us off. She's filed lawsuits against yeah. Joseph. I mean, but he stayed true to it, which says a lot about his what, integrity. what he experienced, his own testimony. But it was because of you know, Martin messing up that we have Oliver Cowdery, who enters in this chapter as well. One of the things that this theme points out is, you know, as the Lord has already planned for his children's success, we kind of have a timeline view where, at least Legrand times it this way, where... The Lord had been preparing Oliver Cowdery for a while before Joseph prayed for a scribe. Mm-hmm. And yet we see that it was, Oliver was pretty much on his way there when Joseph already prayed for this. And he sought out boarding with the Smiths because he had heard the stories. Yeah. And uh, the Smiths were wearied unto silence by that point, by the loss of the manuscripts and all those rumors. And so they, they didn't trust this, this new fellow as quickly, but he, he earned their trust. Absolutely. And it was warranted. He was a good guy. Yeah. And this is part of that line upon line thing that we talked about with how the Lord's preparing a way for his success. And Joseph and Oliver meeting is another line in that progression. And then we also have the entrance of the Whitmers because of Oliver. Mm -hmm. And so the Whitmers become uh, an interesting side part of this story. 
What what is the the role of the Whitmers in the translation of the Book of Mormon? I would say if it wasn't for the Whitmers, the translation would not have been able to be completed. I mean, Joseph and Oliver were not safely able to focus on the translation while they were there, or the threats from the community or what have you. Uh, they just couldn't do it, and it was the Whitmers allowing them into their home that allowed the translation to move forward expeditiously. Yeah. Especially Mary Whitmer's kindness, and we'll talk about her in the next episode more, but she really, really sacrificed a lot. Yeah. And there's kind of become this, I would almost say, there's kind of become this famous story about the Whitmers needing to do some planting and mm-hmm. some, some farming duties and how they received some additional help. They did. They did. So I, I guess, I think Legrand says it this way, that uh, uh, David Whitmer's father d- didn't feel the urgency of helping Joseph and Oliver right away. And, and frankly, boy, would he yet. I mean, he doesn't know them quite as well. Um, but they needed to do uh, two hard days of labor, of planting the fields, planting the wheat. I believe it's wheat. Some crop. Plant, Let's just go planting the crop. crop. <laughs> they needed to do it where they needed to plow the fields, plant the crops, and then sow a plaster of Paris as a fertilizer, which was another time-sensitive task, as Legrand points out, because... Uh, in the form, in the form it was in now, if it became wet, say through a rainstorm, it would set like concrete. Yeah. And if you've been up there to that part of New York, you will know rainstorms are frequent and uh, and, and heavy. heavy. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, and he got to his fields and found the plow already. I believe they say a third of the way through the field, and that he was just miraculously enabled to get two hard days of work done in a single day. Yeah. Um, and they found the fields sewn, uh, uh, sewn and uh, pla- I guess plastered, but the appropriate term in this case, <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, and plastered with the plaster of Paris already. And he was able to go much more quickly. And his family was convinced more of the importance of what they were doing because of that. That all these obstacles were lifted up. Yeah, it was kind of a small miracle. Mm-hmm. And so this allowed. Was it David Whitmer? David went down. David went to get Oliver and Joseph. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, this principle, that we have a story where I kind of joke that this is FedEx Moroni. (laughs) I have, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So basically, Joseph was worried that in in their traveling from where they were at to the Whitmer's home, that they would run into someone that would steal the plates. And we're not, I don't know if Legrand is clear on whether this was Joseph's concern himself, or if Moroni just said, no, I'm going to... That's true. Because Moroni's had these plates in his care for 1,400 years, and he's going to keep an eye on them. Yeah. And so in this particular case, while they're traveling, he He takes takes care of them. And this is not necessarily an angelic ministration, Mm -hmm. but David and Oliver are able to see Moroni traveling along the road. They didn't know it was him at first. Yeah, and uh, it was only Joseph telling them later... Uh, the account we have comes from David Whitmer uh, much later in life. I want to say probably in the 1870s or 1880s. I think he died in 1885, 1887 maybe. Um, but uh, this man came up alongside the wagon, commented on it being a hot day, wiped his forehead, and um, at Joseph's motion, they invited him to join him, but he said, no, I am going to Camorra. And that's why we aren't sure about when this came around, because the hill wasn't known. Uh, as Camorra at that point. Yeah, so nobody used that word. Nobody used that word yet. Um, 
but just went along. He described him as about five eight or five nine, heavy set with a white hair and beard. Yeah, certainly with a knapsack or something. With a na- like that. Uh, he describes it as an old army knapsack in yeah. one of the sources, with what looks something like something heavy inside of it. And um, he went on ahead. It's certainly that is an image that certainly runs counter to the Arnold Freebergs <laughs> the or robe. the or the living scriptures. That's that's my yeah. that's always been my mental image since I saw those since I was a little kid. Yeah, uh, image of Moroni, and that just goes to show you. I mean that I that what comes to mind, frankly, is that in Isaiah, there, he had this is blind to Christ, of course, but he hath no beauty that we should desire him. We often like kind of beautify our prophets, scriptural figures. Maybe we should realize that. They were people just like us. Well, and Joseph's descriptions of Paul, for instance, I think I might have mentioned this before, but certainly run counter. Uh, yeah, like to, a high-pitched voice. Yeah, high-pitched like that. voice that lit into a roar. He was a, a short man, he described him. Well, and, and one of the things, not to defend Freeberg per se, but he said that it he painted them. Alive. Well, he, he, he painted them, he said, in the manner of their spiritual strength not in their physical strength. And certainly it was that. So that was an artistic expression. That's why Nephi and Abinadi and every single person just looks absolutely ripped mm-hmm. because they were spiritually strong. So I there not, you go. I had not heard that account from Freeburg before. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So anyway, this is kind of at the heart of, of this principle is this idea that there are many different factors and many different ways that the Lord works with us and works with the people around us to get his work accomplished, but also to see us succeed. Mm-hmm. And Joseph, all the different stories that they share throughout this are going to be examples of that in Joseph's own life, specifically with the translation of the Book of Mormon. So here we go now with a reading of Principle 6 from Joseph and Moroni. Happy listening. 6th Principle, Joseph and Moroni, The Seven Principles Moroni Taught Joseph Smith by Legrand L. Baker. The Lord has already planned for his children's success. Joseph is told to translate the small plates of Nephi. In the beginning, there was a plan established whereby each child of our Father in heaven would receive just the right challenges and experiences to be able to define oneself and one's happiness in terms of the Savior and his atonement. Accommodations were made in that plan to thwart all the maneuvering of Satan and still leave each person free to choose. The father had known in advance what Satan would do to try to destroy Joseph and his work and had made all necessary preparations to protect Joseph and still give him the chance to choose. Thus, after Nephi had arrived in America, the Lord instructed him to make a set of small plates and to engrave in many things upon them which are good in my sight, for the profit of thy people. Nephi obeyed. He spent the next ten years composing and polishing a perfectly structured epic poem that not only told a story, but also described the goodness and the mysteries of God. Nephi added to that poem, 1st Nephi, additional inspired writings, 2nd Nephi, then gave these small plates to Jacob to be added to and preserved. A thousand years after that, the Lord instructed Mormon to insert Nephi's small plates intact without abridging them into the history he was compiling. Now, almost 2,500 years after Nephi had written it, the Lord explained to the prophet Joseph the fruition of his plan. An account of those things that you have written, which have gone out of your hands, is engraven upon the plates of Nephi. Therefore, you shall translate the engravings which are on the plates of Nephi, down even till you come to the reign of King Benjamin, or until you have come to that which you have translated, which you have retained. 
The Lord then explained that Joseph was not alone in his task. His assignment was the culmination of the work of many other prophets, and his ultimate success would be, in part at least, because of their great faith and love and their desire that the people of the last days receive the blessings of the gospel. And behold, all the remainder of this work does contain all those parts of my gospel, which my holy prophets, yea, and also my disciples, desired in their prayers, should come forth unto this people. And I said unto them, that it should be granted unto them according to their faith in their prayers. Yea, and this was their faith, that my gospel, which I gave unto them, that they might preach in their days, might come unto their brethren, the Lamanites, and all that had become Lamanites, because of their dissensions. Now this is not all. Their faith in their prayers was that the gospel should be made known also, if it were possible, that other nations should possess this land. And thus they did leave a blessing upon this land in their prayers, that whosoever should believe in this gospel in this land might have eternal life. Yea, that it might be free unto all of whosoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people they may be. And now, behold, according to their faith in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. The loss of the first 116 pages of the translation of Mormon's abridgment had served two purposes. First, there is possibly more wisdom than we know in the fact that Joseph's first, perhaps stumbling, attempts to translate were not preserved and were not intended to be preserved. Second, it gave Joseph an opportunity to be challenged and thereby demonstrate his integrity, to learn about obedience and sacrifice, and after he had met the challenge, to find fulfillment and security in God's love for him and in his love for God. The Lord had foreseen Joseph's need to be taught, and had arranged that Mormon's abridgment would be used to school the young prophet. With that accomplished, the abridgment could be replaced by Nephi's testimony. The loss of the 116 pages had been a hurtful experience for Joseph. The Lord withdrew his spirit, and Joseph tasted the bitterness of hell. Joseph received a revelation calling Martin a wicked man, and telling him he could no longer participate in the translation. If Martin had believed that Joseph had contrived his story in order to get rich, or that Joseph's revelations were a hoax, this would have been the perfect time for him to respond by exposing Joseph to the world. But he did not. Instead, he acknowledged his sins and repented. The Lord had also foreseen Martin Harris's weaknesses and gave Joseph assurance that he could be forgiven. In time, Martin became one of the three witnesses, and for the rest of his life, he testified that the Book of Mormon was truly the Word of God. When Moroni returned the plates and the Urim and Thummim to Joseph, he told him that he could begin translating the Book of Mormon whenever he wished, but Martin Harris, who had sought to destroy him, could never again act as his scribe. One cannot honestly assist a prophet unless one's purpose is to serve the Lord. Since Martin could no longer write for Joseph, Emma took up the task, but housework and other things got in the way. At length, the Savior instructed the prophet to wait, promising to send someone else in due time. Oliver Cowdery comes to help Joseph. Oliver Cowdery, who was almost the same age as Joseph Smith, was the new school teacher in Palmyra. He taught all the grades in one room schoolhouse and was paid by the parents of the children who attended. But Joseph's parents, who did not have enough money to pay, gave Oliver board and room in lieu of tuition. After the family learned to trust him, they frankly answered Oliver's questions about Joseph and his golden book. When spring came and school was out, 
Oliver decided to go to Pennsylvania to meet Joseph for himself. Ten months had passed since Martin Harris had lost the manuscript. Joseph did not record how he spent that time, but it is not hard to guess. When Joseph began to translate again, his speed and ability were so much improved that after Oliver arrived, Joseph was able to translate the entire Book of Mormon, as we have it, in less than twice the time it had taken him to complete the small part Martin had lost. During those ten months, Joseph had obviously been doing his homework. Three days before Oliver arrived at Joseph's home, the prophet, who now felt confident enough to begin the translation work in earnest, prayed to ask the Lord to send him a scribe. The Lord responded that one would come soon. When Oliver Cowdery got there, Joseph knew more about why he had come than Oliver did. They talked late into the night and again the next day. Then on the third morning, they began working together on the translation of the Book of Mormon. For Oliver and Joseph, translating was a learning experience and they were discovering ideas they, or at least Oliver, had never encountered before. The Restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood New ideas give rise to new questions. Many of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants were given in response to Joseph's questions while he was translating or otherwise reading the scriptures. One of the earliest examples of this resulted in the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. Joseph and Oliver had been working together for about a month when they came to a place in the record that discussed the importance of baptism. Neither of them had been baptized, so they went into the woods to pray and ask about baptism. After walking together for a short distance out among the trees, they stopped at the banks of the ambling Susquehanna River. As they prayed, they saw an angel descend in a cloud of light. The angel introduced himself as John the Baptist. He taught them how to baptize, and he ordained them to the Aaronic priesthood. Then, as he instructed, Joseph and Oliver baptized each other. This was apparently the first time Oliver had ever seen an angel. Of that experience, he left an account that visually blossoms with 19th century flourishes of language. It is delightful to read, but its contrast with the simplicity of the way Joseph told the story leaves one to muse how grateful one is that Oliver was Joseph's scribe instead of the other way around. The prophet's version of this experience is, as is his account of the first vision, expressed in plain, matter-of-fact, truthful, well-mannered prose. Immediately on our coming up out of the water after we had been baptized, we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Heavenly Father. No sooner had I baptized Oliver Cowdery than the Holy Ghost fell upon him, and he stood up and prophesied many things which should shortly come to pass. And again, so soon as I had been baptized by him, I also had the spirit of prophecy when standing up. I prophesied concerning the rise of this church and many other things connected with the church and this generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. After they were baptized and the Holy Ghost came upon them, the work of their translation took an entirely new dimension. Our minds being now enlightened, we began to have the scriptures laid open to our understanding, and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. That statement by the prophet should be carefully considered. It tells one a great deal about the translation process and about the value of the Holy Ghost. Notwithstanding all he had seen and heard from the angels and from the Savior, Joseph did not clearly understand what the Book of Mormon prophets had written about the mysteries of the gospel until after he was baptized. He reported, We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. His understanding of the fullness of the gospel came in the appropriate sequence 
after obedience and sacrifice. The Whitmers prepare to receive their guests. About a week after the visit of John the Baptist, again while translating the Book of Mormon, Joseph received a warning through the Urim and Thummim. There was a plot brewing to kill him. He and Oliver were to get away from there as quickly as possible. They would be safe, the message continued, if they went to the home of David Whitmer, a friend of Oliver's whom Joseph had never met. Oliver was instructed to write David immediately and invite himself and Joseph to live with the Whitmers while they finished translating the Book of Mormon. Oliver wrote the letter asking David to bring a wagon to Harmony as soon as he could and to take Joseph and Oliver home with him. When David received the letter, he asked his parents if Joseph and Oliver could come. His parents did not object, but they were not prepared to receive these unexpected guests. David's father reminded him that there was still much work to be done in the fields, and until it was finished, they could spare neither the wagon and horses nor the time to go fetch the visitors. David could go, but not until he had taken care of things at home. The Whitmers did not feel the same sense of urgency the Lord had conveyed to the prophet, but they would. The first task was to plow a 20-acre field. The morning after he had received Oliver's letter, David went out early to get started plowing, but he found someone had taken the plow from the place in the yard where the Whitmers always kept it. David was amazed when he located it in the field he had planned to plow. During the night, someone had used it to plow almost a third of that field, and he hadn't the foggiest notion who might have done it. The plow was left standing in the furrow, as he would have left it. All David had to do that morning was hitch the horses to the plow and finish the job. The Whitmers had been sowing wheat just before Oliver's letter arrived. If the seeds were left on the top of the ground, they would sprout and die because they could not take root. The wheat had to be harrowed in the earth, and that had to be done before David left. There was about as much wheat sown as David could harrow in two days, hard work. There were also several piles of plaster of Paris that were to be spread on another field. Plaster of Paris was used as a kind of fertilizer in its powder form, was sown on a field in much the same way wheat was sown. That job also had to be done immediately, because if the piles of powdered plaster were rained on, they would set up like concrete. When David went out to harrow the wheat, he had the strong impression that rather than dividing the field into small sections and doing them one at a time, as he usually did, he would drive around the entire field. When he stopped for lunch, he looked around and discovered to his surprise that he had harrowed in half the wheat. After lunch, he went on as before, and by evening he had finished the entire field. He had done two days' work in a single day. His father was beginning to feel there was something rather pressing about getting Joseph and Oliver. The speed with which the obstacles to David's going were being removed confirmed his feelings. Observing the family that there must have been an overruling hand in this, his father urged David to go get their guests as soon as the plaster was sown. David planned to begin that task the next morning. As day broke, he took a wooden scoop under his arm and went out to sew the plaster of Paris. He had seen it in the piles near his sister's home, but when he got there, but when he got to where it was supposed to be, it was gone. He ran to the house and asked his sister if she knew what had happened to it. She did and she could not understand why he was upset. The day before, she had watched three men. They had spread plaster faster than anyone she had ever seen before. Even her children had been fascinated by the quickness with which the men moved. They were strangers to her. They certainly did not live nearby. But she supposed David must have hired them. David and his family were now convinced that something very important was going on and that God intended they should be part of it. He wanted them to get Joseph and Oliver, and he wanted them to do it now. 
David hitched up the wagon and started off. He traveled the 135 miles in a surprisingly short time. As would any good horseman, he kept alert to the needs of his animals. He was in a hurry, but knew better than to push them too fast. In a long haul, fatigued horses move more slowly than rested ones. To his amazement, in spite of the distance and their speed, his horses did not tire. Joseph knew David was coming. He told Oliver when David started from home, where he stopped the first night, and how he read the sign at the public house, and where he stopped the second night. When David was only a few miles from Joseph's home, the prophet knew that too, so he and Oliver walked down the road to meet him. David was surprised to receive this reception, and even more surprised to learn that Joseph had known just when he would arrive. But when Oliver told him how Joseph had described his journey, David became quite convinced that Joseph was a prophet and became more eager than ever to help. They left for the Whitmer farm almost immediately. Emma stayed back to look after things, but she would join them a short time later. Moroni carries the plates for Joseph. Joseph did not take the Book of Mormon plates with him to the Whitmer's home because he feared that if he were stopped this time, the plates would be stolen. Instead, he gave them to Moroni to carry. The angel would return them to him after the travelers had arrived at their destination. During the trip back to David's home, when David and Oliver were riding on the old-fashioned spring seat in the front of the wagon, and Joseph was behind them in the wagon box, a rather extraordinary thing happened. Years later, David recalled that they were driving through a clear open place when a very pleasant, nice-looking old man suddenly appeared beside the wagon. Good morning. It is very warm, the man said, as he wiped his forehead with his hand. Oliver and David looked at Joseph. He nodded, and they asked the old fellow to ride with them. He replied, No, I'm going to Camorra. That name caught their attention. They gazed at him, and then for a moment at each other. And they looked around inquiringly of Joseph. The old man instantly disappeared. David remembered him as being about five feet eight or nine inches tall and heavy set. His hair and beard were white. He had on his back a sort of knapsack with something in it shaped like a book. David understood or was told by Joseph, he does not say which, that this man was the messenger who had the plates and who had taken them from Joseph just prior to our starting from Harmony. After the travelers reached their destination and were settled at the Whitmer farm, Joseph went alone out into the garden. There, according to prior arrangements, the prophet met the angel who returned the plates to him. The next day, Joseph and Oliver began translating again. In the security of the Whitmer home, they would be able to continue their work without much interference until the translation was completed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast, the sixth principle in Joseph and Moroni, the seven principles Moroni taught Joseph Smith by LeGrand L. Baker. Please stay tuned and subscribe to this podcast to get all the new episodes of the Rare Possessions Podcast brought to you by Book of Mormon Central. Music